0: This episode of the Paddock Pass podcast is brought to you by Renthal and Fly Racing.
1: Hello and welcome to the Paddock Pass podcast presented by Renthal Street Components. With over 800 street fitments for handlebars, bar mounts, clip-ons, brake pads, chains and sprockets, check out renthal.com. As ever, we have a full cast of podcasters on today's review show from the Indonesian Grand Prix. Myself, Steve English, David Emmett, Adam Wheeler. And most importantly, we've got Neil Morrison dialing in on Zoom from Jakarta Airport. So we're going to give a little bit of an apology in advance for Neil's audio quality. But time is of the essence to get Neil on the pod. So we've been able to draft him in from the airport. This is going to be the 268th episode of the Paddock Pass podcast. And while that sounds like a big number... Tell you what, we've never had a show where we're going to talk about some of the things we're going to talk about on today's show. We had basically local witches trying to ward off evil spirits such as the rain. We had, uh, you know, everything from new tyres for Michelin to some exciting racing. And uh, really, Neil, other than probably the biggest crash that any of us have ever seen in the four-stroke era of MotoGP, there was loads to talk about over the course of the Indonesian Grand Prix. But I'm most interested to know how you fared on the ground.
2: Not too bad, Steve. Yeah, pretty good. Um, it was uh, a bit of a chaotic weekend in, in some respects. I mean, we had so much going on. We had uh, kind of the weather. We had iffy track surface that was breaking apart. The Model 2 race on Sunday, threatening maybe how uh, the Model 2 race was going to pan out. We had shortened races. Um, and uh, yeah, it was uh, it all kind of came yeah We had a kind of a harder Michelin tyre, which threw everyone off. So all these things combined together made it just have that kind of slightly chaotic feel. But um, the experience in Indonesia itself was was really cool, I must say. Um, first time I'd ever been on the island of Lombok. And uh, that was that was great. It's a pretty unique setting for a MotoGP race. As you know, Steve, you were there last year for Superbikes, and um, yeah, I have to say it was, even though maybe the crowds weren't uh, there in the numbers that we were anticipating or expecting, uh, it was still cool to see the reaction of the Indonesian fans, and it's not always the case that you hear massive screams and roars from the grandstands opposite the media centre and opposite, opposite the pit building, but that was certainly the case yesterday. you got a real impression of atmosphere and excitement, so that was cool. Uh,
3: what the, there were lots of photos of crowds actually sort of standing on the hillside and all the rest of it. Were there more people outside the track than inside the track?
2: I mean, that's tough to say. Uh, as you know, Dave, I'm a pretty sensitive skinned chap and I can't really be a striding <laughs> one to the track uh, in the middle of uh, the afternoon heat, not least uh, in a place which is just below the equator. Uh, so I was out on Thursday but just looking at photographs taken by our colleagues. There were a fair amount of people outside. Yeah, um, It was very strange, like very quiet on Friday and Saturday. I thought it was going to be like completely empty. But there were actually decent projects there. I went out and spoke to a few people outside the track on just before the motor 3 race started and there were lots of people coming in. Parking and transport into the circuit was a total disaster. But having anyone that's been in Jakarta before will know that um, maybe that is uh, sort of something that you associate with, with Indonesia, the traffic jams and things like that. So yeah, um, I'm not sure of the kind of the ratio of people outside to inside. but. I think around, they said 60000 showed up on Sunday. I think um, considering the, the enthusiasm uh, from what GP in this country, we were expecting a bit more.
1: Yeah, obviously we get a lot of listeners from Indonesia on the podcast as well. So I'm sure it was pretty special for any of them that were in attendance over the weekend. David, obviously during the course of the qualifying session, we saw again that a lot of talk, especially even in Q1, about whether or not guys would go with a two-stop strategy or whether they try and make do and try and save a soft tyre. I have to ask you, what was your coffee strategy during the course this weekend? Was it two cups, three cups, or uh, was it just shovelling as much as you possibly could? Yeah, it was very much a uh,
3: quantity over quality uh, strategy. It was, uh, uh, as you know, I am not a morning person. Um, I think you're barely an I'd-
1: afternoon person, Dave. <laughs>
3: No, I can, you know, I can, I can sort of cope with the, uh, it, you know, it, it's a nice, nice time to sort of noon, 1pm is a really good time to get your day started. Um, it's, uh, yeah, no, mornings, the worst thing about these races, unless you actually go to them, uh, is the mornings. And if you do actually go to them, then you're stuck with the jet lag.
1: And uh, Adam, obviously it was a very full weekend for you. You had to uh, get up nice and early, watch the races. Then you have to jump on Zoom calls. Then you have to write some stuff. You also had to be a dad. You had to go to Geordie's football matches
4: yesterday. So I'd say Sunday evening rolled around and you were ready for bed. It was a busy weekend, Steve. I was playing myself. We won 5-1 on Father's Day. Uh, And then, of course, on Sunday, you know, it was a 4.30 start for me in the morning. Um, so I was thinking of Dave and I was tempted to ring him up, but, uh, I thought it'd be, it'd be particularly <laughs> cruel. Um, but you know, being four thirty, it meant he probably only went to bed about an hour beforehand after doing his, his write-up and his analysis. Uh, and then of course the MXGP was in, in Argentina. So I started the day in the dark, uh, working in front of the computer and I finished it in the dark. Uh, that was obviously like, I think three or four hours behind. So, uh, yeah, busy one, but, um, I'm flying to Seattle, in a couple of days uh, for the latest round of Supercross. So that'd be uh, a good time to get some content and then straight, well, not straight, but then Austin next. So um, with yeah, the higher... I'm the not, not jealous
1: you win- are all going to Seattle, lad
4: yeah well i mean I, traditionally it rains so it's not i'm going to be going there and enjoying any californian sunshine that's for sure um you know as is normally the case visiting supercross but uh you know uh, austin there sounds like there's quite a few plans to do some um what's the word legacy stuff so it should be quite interesting you know what we're going to see there so it'll be a good good first uh gp for me after my qatar fr- frustration
1: Yeah, we're going to try and organise a couple of things over the Austin weekend as well, because obviously Adam, David and Neil are all going to be on site. So we're going to try and organise a few things for our patrons from the US and uh, maybe a meetup as well. So keep an eye on all of our social channels for that and uh, we'll keep you posted on it. Obviously enough, guys, there's an awful lot to talk about. So we're going to jump straight into it with our moments of the weekend. So Adam, this is in alphabetical order today. Adam. What was your moment of the weekend?
4: Uh, are we starting on the fantasy league yet or not? Oh, okay, right. Um, for the moment of the we're weekend. We're
1: ignoring that for as long as possible. Ah, Hoops right. GP.
4: Sorry, I thought we were. I thought we were going straight into it. My moment of the weekend was uh, Mark's crash in warm-up. Um, You know, I'm sure we're going to talk about Mark, you know, in more depth on the podcast, but to see the, I think the sheer violence of that crash was shocking for a lot of people. And I, it's something I know, Dave, you posted on Twitter that you went into the accident almost frame by frame because the genesis of it, I mean, it's basically a high side, but the, you know, we said on the paddock past uh, podcast note show on Sunday, I don't think we've seen anything quite as big or as scary as that since maybe Jorge Lorenzo in China. You know in his first season in MotoGP, gp but um i contacted alpine stars for for some data on the crash and um you know i think they might put out some sort of press release later this week but they believe it was um well over 25g uh, when he was flicked off the bike he was airborne for over a second um and of course they're they're quite pumped with the way that their tech air system managed to you know help mark avoid the brunt of the crash or many more injuries apart from a knock to the head um, you know, in particular, the super tech boots that Alpine Stars have. Um, you know, boots, I guess people are quite dismissive of them. That, you know, they, they usually help riders in terms of abrasion and wear when they crash. But it seems the impact protection that, you know, Marquez had there did a good job in stopping him breaking more bones. But yeah, just the shock of that, Steve, the fact that he was missing in the Grand Prix. Um, that was, that was my moment.
1: Yeah, I have to say, because obviously you guys are usually in the media centre for pretty much all sessions. I managed to get out quite a bit to take some photos, especially if I go to a GP or a test or anything like that. And I've had it a few times where there's been a crash in front of me. And a big high side is, it's so violent. We're used to seeing it on TV, but when you see a track side, it's absolutely nothing like what we see on TV. It really does look like the world's going to end for that rider. And this crash was a proper old school, 502 stroke kind of crash. It was massive. So I I can only imagine what it was like for anyone that was trackside for something like that. Absolutely huge crash. But uh, David, what about you? What was your moment of the weekend?
3: Uh, I, well, my vote of the weekend is the person who saved the whole weekend, which is the uh, the, the the rain shaman, the uh, pawang Hujan, um, the Indonesian woman who uh, came out um, in the middle of the de- deluge and uh, performed a ceremony to, to 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 control the clouds and chase them away, and uh, uh, successfully, um, naturally doing well performing rain ceremonies in climates where it's only ever going to rain for an hour uh, is always going to be successful so um, that was that was good it was but it was actually it felt really interesting to actually see some real local culture instead of the sort of the very staged stuff you always get to see at uh, at events this this felt much more um, much more fun and as far as I could tell I was looking at some of the uh, or I was, you know, sort of googling some stuff, and it, she's turned into with this massive viral TV hit in Indonesia. She was on lots of the TV channels, so um, uh, that was great. I uh, and I, I just enjoyed it. Also, it just felt like you were doing something. Do you know what I mean? Like we're trying our best. Instead of standing outside and looking up into the sky and thinking, "Oh well, I hope it stops."
4: It, it, it at least someone was uh, was actually doing something. So, from everything that I- happened in the Grand Prix, Dave, you picked the lady banging <laughs> a coconut on the grid. Yeah, oh, yeah,
3: it was, it was, it was, a, uh, it was actually a kind of a gong, um, uh, and then we a very nice sound. You know, it's the old Indonesian gamelan thing, um, which is very, very, very restful and peaceful. So, and at that time in the morning, something restful and peaceful is very much what I'm about.
2: David's obviously sat there taking notes, ready to perform the ceremony for when we go to Aston later in the air. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I was just going to say, Neil, it must have actually reminded you of being in Catalonia, just with someone going around banging pots and pans in protest. <laughs> <laughs>
2: yes, that is a good points, Steve, although that hasn't happened in, in Catalonia recently. Um, but yeah, at, at one point it was like, are we really watching this? But I think um, they managed to do a relatively good job of uh, maintaining everyone's concentration and, and interest uh, because I think they had a brass band. They had the, the president of Indonesia show up in front of the, the grandstand to wave. Uh, they had the shaman, obviously. So um, yeah, I think compared to some long rain delays that we've had this one was actually fairly entertaining.
1: Yeah, and obviously, Neil, you've had your fair share of walking around shaming us on there, but uh, what was your moment of the weekend?
2: My moment of the weekend, Steve, was in the MotoGP race. Uh, it was when two brothers came together on track and uh, the less experienced one and the one that has been derided for some of his antics in the past and the fact that he managed to land a MotoGP ride for this year, uh, put a move on the older, more experienced one who was on the podium in the previous MotoGP 2 race. Uh, yeah, Darren Binder, his sensational ride through the fields, uh, I think he was 22nd after the first lap. Uh, first race, first experience in full wet conditions on a Moto2 machine uh, with Michelin's rain tires, which are vastly different to what he was using from Dunlop in the Moto3 class in previous years. And it took him a few laps to get up to speed, but he just grew in confidence, bought his way through and at one point was sitting in 8th, which was a pretty tremendous five-pack Considering I think just uh, one rider crashed in front of him, who was walking team. So um, it was quite interesting to see a lot of the uh, very vocal critics of Darren Binder uh, that were um, very vocal at the end of last year. Um, So I really enjoyed that.
3: And he's leading the rookie, uh, rookie of the Year Championship at the moment as well. So, um, uh, you know, well outclassing Ralph Fernandes, Remy Gardner, who were first and second in the Moto2 Championship, uh, and ahead of Fabio Di Gian Antonio.
1: Yeah, the, the Binder battle was definitely something that was really interesting during the course of that race. And uh, like you said, Neil, it's nice for Darren to be able to sign some of those critics. You know, I know, we've talked about it quite a bit in the pod in the pre-season uh, build-up about how a lot of the issues that Binder had in Moto3 with that riding style likely weren't going to be an issue in Moto GP because you can't ride a bike like that in GP. And uh, it was good to see Binder able to to show something here so early in the season as well. Um I think for me my moment of the weekend was Jake Dixon getting his pole position in Moto 2 just because it's again a pit like Binder it shows that big step forward that can be made once you're on the right package for you as well Dixon obviously we've seen a few flashes from him over the last few years I think back to Le Mans in 2020 and a couple of other races where he's really been able to show something it was good to be able to see him get that pole position and uh, just a shame he crashed out in the early stages of the race but at least it gives him something really big to build on Always
2: a highlight of Steve English this weekend when he sees Union Jack displayed all around uh, the TV cameras.
1: <laughs> yeah, Paddy's day, it isn't the same unless there's Union Jacks everywhere.
4: <laughs> Steve, is that really your... Like, I mean, sorry, I don't want to be you know doubting moments of the weekend after calling out Dave's fondness for the for the rain lady. But, um, you know, I mean, sh- shouldn't Jake Dixon be putting... Shouldn't he be making pole position more regularly? I mean, and also wasn't it kind of fairly typical of the way things have gone so far that he does so well on the Saturday, but then fails to deliver on the Sunday. Again, I don't, I don't want to sort of, you know, be overly negative to the guy, but you know, I, it's, I think that's the the performance level he should be setting. Shouldn't it?
1: I, don't really think so, to be honest, because I don't think Dixon's that guy that week in, week out is going to be able to get himself to the front. I think it's one of those ones where he needs his good weekends to have a chance like this. Indonesia is obviously a bit of a unique set of circumstances given the conditions we had over the weekend. He started the season well in Qatar with some good pace. This is where he hopefully makes a step forward and he's able to do this a bit more consistently. But it's a bit like anything else. Whenever you're looking at The Moto 2 class, like when you look at that class, when you look at the entry list, when you look at session by session, you know, I think if Dixon's up there inside the top six each week, I think he's doing really well. I don't expect him to be a pole hound, I don't expect him to be podiums every week. I was surprised whenever I was, you know, reading about the build ups of the race and people were talking about him as, you know, you can't miss favour to win the race because. I didn't expect him to go out and win the race. If he gets a podium, I think he's done a really good job. But uh, Neil, obviously, you're a much better place to be able to talk a little Moto2. But uh, what, what about you? What was your thoughts on Dixon's weekend?
2: Well, it was impressive, obviously. Very unfortunate that he crashed out. I spoke to uh, his team boss, Gino Borsoi, after the race, and Gino backed up Jake's claim that he hadn't done anything differently than the, the previous lap. They had checked his data and they'd seen no difference in where he breaks and his lean angle. Um, Rain had started falling very gently, but there were definitely spits of rain um, just prior to him crashing. So it looks as though that might have caught him out. But yeah, really unfortunate. I think to answer your question, I... Yeah, okay, you could say Jake should be doing this in his fourth year, but just when you look at last year, I mean, last year was such a, a tough year for him. Um, I think he really has made a, a significant step forward. To go from a guy that was occasionally getting top 10s to a guy that's now top in sessions and fighting for the front row, race contender, um, I think that's a, that's a notable step forward for him. So um, you have to feel that the result is, is coming.
1: Yeah, I think for for me, whenever I look at that class, I I do see Dixon as being, over the course of a season, let's say we've got 20 races, 21 races. If he can have six or seven weekends like he had in Indonesia... And then on his his other weekends, to be able to grind out good results, I think that'd be really impressive for him. I thought one of the most interesting things for me in Moto2 this weekend, even just looking at the British riders from that perspective, Dixon had his crash because he's not that used to being at the front of the field. I thought it was interesting that for a second race in a row, we saw Sam Lowes take a step back. The conditions were tricky and he looked at it for the long game. And I think that's one of those things that Dixon's out there trying to prove himself, just like we saw Lowe's do for so many years, really out living for that moment, living for that race. Whereas you need to look at it from a much longer perspective as well. And I think that's where these early rounds, you know, David, you tweet about it a lot. It's your bad days that lose you a championship. And these early rounds, you need to make sure you're able to keep yourself in the hunt. Obviously enough, we're going to move on from moments of the weekend to our big talking points. So Adam... We'll start off with you for this. What was your big talking point from the weekend? Uh,
4: I would like to know your opinion, guys, because I I kind of believe that the rain saved this Grand Prix. Um, there was a moment where it seemed to be dropping into a, an element of farce. Um, I mean, I you cannot, I or anybody, I don't think, can doubt the ambition behind Mandalika um, and the work they've done in Lombok. Um, Indonesia is 100% a territory and a market that should be on the MotoGB calendar. Um, you know, we've seen enough stuff on social media to justify the passion and, and the enthusiasm that the, you know, the fans and, and the people, the Indonesian people have. And I've seen more than several comments, Neil, you could back this up, of people saying their first visit to this particular part of the world was entirely pleasant. Um, the people were, were fantastic, very welcoming. Um, you know, I just think on Sunday there was, okay, where are the fans? You know, where is this crazy fever for MotoGP that we've all been told about? Um, you know, what kind of issue there? Was it a ticket price thing? Was it an access to the island thing? Was it something to do with the infrastructure of the circuit that just wasn't ready to host such a vast volume of people? Um, and then, of course, we get into the sister, into the process of the track degradation, um, you know, Moto3 running ahead, you know, without any problems, but then suddenly Moto2 being cut by six, oh, well, nine laps from 25 to, to 16 Um, you know, we're getting mixed messages about whether the, the race distance has been cut also for MetaGP because of the state of the track or because it was a weather thing. Um, it was, you know, very confusing. Um, it seemed kind of chaotic uh, and it just seemed to undermine the credibility of the event a little bit. Cause like David pointed out earlier, you know, you had the president of the country in attendance. It was obviously a very big deal. So I I just had the feeling that, you know, the rain came along and to see the amount of grip that the riders ended up having in MotoGP because watching the safety car going around, it looked like Silverstone in 18. I mean, you know, it was flooded. It was absolutely flooded. And sitting there waiting, I think there was more than a couple of us thinking, okay, there's no way this can happen. You cannot ride a motorcycle around there. But in the end, the guys were setting lap times only eight seconds off their dry times, which is staggering. Um, and to see some of the lean angles and some of the overtaking moves, some of the bravado of the riders in, in the actual MotoGP race was was fantastic. And in the end, we had a spectacle. So, yeah, I think, you know, everything from the rain shaman to the flashes of the lightning that we saw. Um, Neil, I think you informed us on the WhatsApp group that the organization had actually pulled the marshals Away from the circuit because of the the threat of the thunderstorm and the lightning flashes, um, you know I think the rain went just created an extra element of drama, but in the end kind of saved things.
3: Uh, Zara, my friend who uh, uh, writes the GP Ros, she said oh, I see they found a new way of fixing the asphalt. Um, uh, <laughs> you know, just throw a lightning bolt at it and uh, that should be enough to to melt it. Um, it was uh, I did. Yes, I think the rain did save it. It was it was a complete mess. All of those all of those answers, uh, all those questions you could, you could you posed, Adam, could be answered with yes. The uh, it was saved because of the because it rained because they could uh, you know they could ride. The 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 race had already been cut from twenty seven to twenty to twenty laps because of the track surface, not because of the rain. The rain came uh, um, came later. The it, the track is there. It's a, if they build it, uh, if you build it, they will come idea. You know, you build the track, um, you generate the interest and then you build the infrastructure to, to host all of that. Um but people, you know, locals were locals were saying that it's, it it is the it was actually cheaper to go to or the ticket prices for F1 at Sepang were cheaper than the MotoGP prices at Mandalika, which means it's completely wrongly priced. And then an Australian pointed out to me, "Oh, Bali and Lombok, we love that. That's where we go on holiday." So It could also end up being sort of like a, you know, a a second or third Australian GP rather than an Indonesian GP, which, again, is really a shame. Really, what MotoGP needs is a race near Jakarta or near a major population centre.
1: Well, the other side of that coin as well is, though, what's the benefit on that for Indonesia? Like the reason that it costs so much to build a track means that you have to get a benefit from that. They get their benefit from the Aussies coming up for a week-long holiday or two weeks. You know, people coming over, just like people will go over to Thailand for uh, the Buriram Ram round. They do a week in Bangkok and then they head down to the race. You know, these racetracks and these events aren't put on the calendar so that Indonesians are able to enjoy their home round. They're there so that you're able to advertise just how you know, attractive the country is, come here, look at the beaches, look at the bikes, and then spend a load of money. You know, the locals aren't going to spend that money, whereas foreign tourists will. And I think that's one of the things that is easily forgotten at this stage, where when you make that investment, it's to try and you know promote your country, your tourism. I think, Adam, one of the things about the racetrack that I found really interesting was just how grippy it was, like you said, because when they changed the, or when they resurfaced the section of the track, that was one of the big question marks. Was it still going to be as grippy in the wet conditions? It's that grippy because it's brand new. It'll be interesting to see how grippy it's going to be In a year's time when MotoGP comes back to town or when Superbikes goes there at the end of the season because we saw for the Superbike race just how grippy it was because pretty much from the second lap of the race we saw riders, especially riders like Toprack, just endowing into corners and just having so much force through. You don't see that in the wet conditions. We saw that this weekend as well in the MotoGP race. Will that be the case if in, you know, six months time, nine months time, 12 months time, whenever the track has been in these harsh conditions all the way through? But I, I thought, like you said, Adam, the rain did save the weekend because we had the shorter race. We had lots of excitement all the way through and uh, David got to see the Shaman as well. So it was great.
3: <laughs> the, the Just to go back to the the amount of grip, the amount of grip was absolutely amazing because um uh, I worked it out. The fastest lap of Fabio Quatraro during the race was uh, 8.4 per, per cent slower than the than a normal lap. Um, and you know, normally at a racetrack, a wet track, it'll be 12, 13, 14 per cent of a uh, 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 of a uh, you know of the, of a normal fast lap. So it was excellent. And I remember watching top Rack being stoppies and thinking, okay, this is not normal in the wet.
2: Yeah, I think it was John Mayer that said uh, the amount of times he was using his elbows through the corners, he was just looking and thinking, well, what am I doing here? This is the way... But he actually felt confident enough and felt there was enough grip to do that, which is quite something. Um, yeah, just to go back to you know what Adam initially said, um, I mean, I think there were real concerns, genuine concerns on Thursday um, that there was going to be some severe issues. Um, I think there was always going to be a race, but just maybe a... a, a Race at half distance or, or a very shortened race. If, if conditions had been as hot as they were on Thursday, right the way through the weekend, um, I think they can count their lucky blessings in many respects. That uh, Friday and Saturday was punctured by rainstorms at certain points. Um, on Thursday, I heard multiple reports of people saying that when they went out for the track walk, parts of this track, both the old surface and the new surface between turn 17 and Turn five was basically coming up. Uh, you can kick it a little forcefully and stones would come up and chunks of the chunks of the track would come up itself. Um and then after the Model 2 race, I was down speaking to a couple of the guys from Model 2 and they were saying it is really dangerous at turn 17. Like genuinely, if Model GP went ahead in dry conditions after that, I don't even know if they could have done their 20 laps as it was uh, as it was shortened to um so yes at one point it did look like the ring was maybe going to um, call off the whole thing um but um, in the end i think the fact that it arrived saved everyone because uh yeah it could have got it could have got a bit a bit crazy especially at um turn 17. so um yeah kind of a mad weekend with, with that being in the background but i mean it just the boy got over the line so i guess we can't be too critical
1: Yeah, mad weekend. And uh, as you can hear from Neil, still uh, in the midst of it, uh, getting himself through Jakarta Airport to get himself home. We're going to take a break on the Paddock Pass podcast, and when we come back, we'll go through some more of the big talking points from the Indonesian Grand Prix.
0: Fly Racing introduces the new FL2 glove. With molded hard knuckle protection, This race-inspired glove is equipped with palm and gauntlet sliders and touchscreen-compatible fingers. Available in three colors and sizes from small to triple X, the Fly Racing FL2 Glove is the perfect answer at the perfect price. Check out flyracing.com to see more.
1: Welcome back to the Paddock Pass podcast presented by Fly Racing and Renthal Street. David, let's uh, kick off part two of today's pod with uh, your big talking point from the weekend.
3: Uh, I think the big talking point... um, it uh, ties in with what uh, Adam was saying, and that was the rear Michelin, the, the, the fact that Michelin had to bring a different construction of tyre. Um, it was a construction they first used in 2018, I think, in Thailand. Um, it's basically uh, stiffer and more stable um, because it, it was there to, to deal with the heat. They were expecting... Track temperatures to be consistently above sixty degrees. That was their experience at the uh, at the test because we had better weather at the test. It was pretty much. I mean, apart from the first day, it was pretty much dry and sunny every day, um, and they were getting very, very high track temperatures. Um, and Michelin weren't certain that the that the tyres would let go. We've seen this. I think. Um, uh, let's see, Argentina 2016 or 17, I think maybe 2016, where the, um, uh, I, I think it was Loris Baz's, uh, tyre let go, um, at, uh, or Scott Redding Scott Yeah, Redding, Scott yeah. Redding Yeah, exactly. Scott Redding's uh, uh tyre let go. What happens is you get too much heat into, uh, into the tyres, and especially around these really fast tracks, um, uh, Mandelica has that whole fast, fast flowing section, and that puts a lot of heat into the tyres um, that was not cooling off, and they were already having problems with the with the uh, right hand side of the tyre at some pla- at some places where they were losing grip because the right hand side of the tyre was getting uh, too hot. So. Michelin bought this tyre for really, really hot uh, track temperatures. Uh, that meant um, we didn't quite get the hot temperatures. That really turned out to be quite bad for a lot of riders. The Suzuki's didn't work. It didn't work for the Hondas. Um, Polo Sparger was absolutely livid, you know, saying... That look, we set this bike up for the for the old tire, and it was working really, far, uh, really well. He uh, was fastest uh, during the test, so obviously he was upset. Then they would bring this new one, and it had less grip, and it was it was problems. Jack Miller liked it because it gave a bit more stability, and sometimes you you, you want that stability, um, but it really punished some uh, you know some riders. Uh, it, it punished the Hondas. It punished the Suzukis the riders who couldn't get the sort of who couldn't get the heat into it where the rear was sort of letting go and it has to be uh at least a factor in mark's crash in Mar- marquez's crash because he was really pushing and we saw several times that you know that the, the rear was coming around on him it was it was very much sort of like the old 500 days or the you know the the, the old 990s with no traction control where you would just sort of use the throttle to, to bring it around um, obviously Mark d- doesn't want electronics he has all of his, his electronics dialed down as far as possible because he wants that control in his, uh, on his wrist um, but this um, I mean it was off throttle he, he went in, he closes the throttle he's doing about 180, 190 kilometres an hour um, and the rear just came, came round gripped, snapped and then threw him off and I think that was um, I, I think tires were a, were a big factor in that. The fact that they weren't providing the grip that they had. But I I can't see that Michelin had much choice because if it had been hot uh, and they bought the original tires, I think you would have seen tires falling apart, and that would have been you would have had a different uh, um, uh, different complaint. So I think it's just par for the course.
1: Yeah, I thought for me it was those off throttle moments were just so surprising to see. We just don't see it all that often anymore. I thought as well, David, like when we had Mark crashing in the qualifying session as well in Q1 and uh, jumps himself straight back up, runs back to the pits, goes out, has another crash as well within five minutes. It was, again, another one of those things that we just don't see all that often. But uh, Neil, what was the the main thoughts from the riders that you talked about this? Because obviously we we were able to jump in on the Zoom calls, but uh, it's very different whenever you're able to catch them walking through the paddock.
2: Yeah, it was strange. Like as Dave mentioned, there it really penalised um, some of the manufacturers. Others, it didn't penalise them so much. You know, Yamaha seemed to be fine, really. Um, and, it, and it's strange because you know this this rear fire obviously has you know less grip. It's it's, it's hard. Um and the Yamaha's you know they depend on there being a lot of grip out right there. Yet it seemed to really not affect them less. I think Franco Morbidelli said on Friday that. Uh, they were probably the least penalised out of all the manufacturers in the grid. It wasn't because they had any advantage or anything, it was just that their level from the test to um, the race was maybe down just one notch, whereas the Hondas were down four or five notches, the same with the Suzuki's. Um, So yeah, it it really depended from manufacturer. You know, Paul Spargo was probably the most outspoken of a lot, just saying that um, it's not really professional or befitting a series like MotoGP that Michelin come and bring a four-year-old tire um, whenever you know all the bikes now on the grid are designed around the rear tire that Michelin introduced for uh, 2020 and we saw initially that that really benefited the inline force the MIS and the Suzuki's in 2020 but since then um, KTM, Honda, had to, and Jakadi essentially, they've really had to change their bikes in Honda's case, completely revolutionized their, their machine in order to take advantage of the extra grip that this rear tire profile offers. And then to go back to 2018, I mean, it's clear to see why some of them were, were thrown so far off uh, or so far out of the, uh, the operating window. So um, yeah, that was that was interesting. another thing, you know, maybe I could have said this, during Adam's second point, but I think the rain also saved um, a lot of kind of red faces from it on Sunday because a lot of riders were saying that (laughs) had it been hot conditions for the race, the front tyre temperatures were so critical and so high, especially at this track where if you went off the racing line, it was quite dodgy and it was very dirty. Therefore, it was basically going to be everyone in line all race long, and if you're behind the bike, the front, t- front tire temperature was just going to escalate at a kind of alarming rate. So it was crazy. Ad riders on Saturday like John like like Paulus Barros, saying, "We're not going to finish the race, like unless something drastically different happens with our setup and Walmart. In this current state, we're going to be crashing out because we can't control the front tire temperature at all." So, you know, part of me wants to would have loved to have seen. Just how it would have panned out because it was going to be one of those crazy, odd races that comes up every now and again, where the conditions and the tires are basically the main factor, you know, rather than who's the quickest on that the day. Um, but we didn't get to see that. But uh, yeah, I think you know the, the rain coming was another reason why it makes more a for the Sunday night, because suddenly riders were talking about the these minutes and rather than how rubbish their decision to bring this 2018 car was
4: yeah i mean the hondas were an interesting case point weren't they neil because i mean you know paul's interview or his debrief on sunday you know he didn't like david mentioned he didn't hold back anything back really in terms of criticism and saying they're an external partner uh they have their responsibility and their part to play but it felt like when mark spoke to the press especially on saturday um about his His approach for the race on Sunday and how he was going to throw a soft rear in and just attack and go for it. Um, I mean, it seemed to highlight the best and worst of Mark Marquez. Um, And in the end, the worst, you know, which was multiple crashes over the weekend, one of them being so big, they counted him out. The race was the one that came to the fore. Um, you know, the, the way that Michelin, I mean, Paul's comments were, were were something, I mean, he was saying it was a waste of time and money, uh, to embark on a three day test and then to come back and have the frame of reference for their grip completely thrown out the window. And he had a point, you know, um, I don't think this was just a case of, um, Honda throwing their, throwing their toys out the pram, but you know, no,
3: no, he didn't. No, he didn't have a point. The point is that the Mandalika test was not for the manufacturers. the Mandalika test was for Michelin and for the uh, uh, and for GP for the series the reason that they do that the reason you have a track you have a test uh, track before you go there is so that the riders understand so that the teams the tire manufacturers everyone else understands uh, what 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 was there so that you can bring the correct tires whether Michelin brought the uh, the right tires or not that that's a separate discussion but it was also for the for the for the factories and all the rest of it paul was just pissed off because he uh, was fastest at the test. He had the bike set up, and then he couldn't. Uh, he couldn't come through to it. But that isn't. I mean, really, that test shouldn't have happened. It, if it had been a normal season, that test wouldn't have happened. We would have had three days at Sepang, and then gone to Qatar and started the season. Yeah, Dave. That's I mean, the, you're that's right. But Paul testing. wasn't the
4: only one who was pissed off about the tire situation. He was just the most expressive. Um, and of course, you know, yeah. I mean, Michelin need a frame of frame of reference for for Lombok, but then you know, it's also three days of, of only five in a pre-season test. So it it's, it can't just be orientated for the tires. If not, then when are we going to Kimmy Ring and you know getting ready for potentially low temperatures or more humid temperatures there? It's uh, we've already had it.
3: Yeah, no, we've already had a test at Kimmering. Uh, there was a test at Kimmering in 2019, 19, 19, I Three think, years yeah. ago. Yeah. yeah.
4: Um. So yeah, yeah you know, I, I just think you know the way that the Michelin's and the grip level grip affected everybody. I mean, I love um, Franco Morbidelli's quote on Friday. I think it was when he said the Yamaha in in crappy conditions we are the less kind of crappy i mean that's 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 a real smart definition of um their current situation i think um but you know like like neil pointed out again you know bring the rain into it and it saves saves a lot of faces i think um i do wonder whether we'll see i mean mark also as well pointed out they had one on this tire so it's not um it's not a complete bastard of the, of the of the catalog if you like
1: neil what about you what was your your big talking point from the weekend? Well,
2: kind of following on from what we just mentioned there, I think um, Mark's crash is uh, is something maybe that's worth discussing. Um, we mentioned it obviously in the, the moments of the weekend section of the podcast, but I think it's just interesting that um, Mark's approach through the weekend was cavalier. It was quite a strange uh, situation on Saturday evening where we had a debrief with Mark at the track and he was talking for about 12 minutes. I mean, usually you get three or four minutes with Mark, Um, but it seemed that Honda and both him were happy to kind of talk at length about what was going on and what his problems were. Um, He crashed four times over the weekend after he crashed for the second and third time in Q1 and missed out on the spot in Q2. He was talking about how he was going to attack the race. Um, I think his initial quote was, you know, it's going to be a crazy race. So, you know, we just need to kind of be careful and get some points on the boards before we then switch to saying, oh, you know, I'm going to put the softest uh, option rear tire in and attack from the start and just go like hell. Um, and he was going like hell on Sunday. Um, but I just think it's it's interesting now. Obviously, after his issues with his vision and the Oblopia at the end of last year, which really put his career under threat um again, like it did in 2011, You know, he's gone and he's taken an almighty smash again here to his head, suffered another concussion. And I just think that Mark can't keep doing this because I'm sure the smash that he had to his head when he was training on an enduro bike at the end of October last year was not as significant or as heavy as the one he just suffered on Sunday. Yet it kept him out of action, kept him on the sofa for the best part of three months. Anytime he stood up for a prolonged period, he was feeling dizzy. So you wonder what kind of effect this is going to have on him this week coming after the race in in Indonesia when he gets home. I mean, and that must be, surely that must be a massive concern and a massive worry for him whenever all is said and done and he's been diagnosed with with concussion. I just wonder whether he can afford to have another weekend like that if he does come back in Argentina and he's he's okay and he's past fit to ride. Surely he cannot have a, a kind of cavalier approach like that again, where it's just all in. I have to put all my cards on the table and try the best that I can, even if it might result in a crash. Because he's taken enough bangs and bites in the last couple of years to show that you know he's pushed his he's pushed the envelope enough through his career, and it it's bit him a couple of times really, really heavily. And um, yeah, his body can only take so many of these beatings.
3: Yeah I I went through and watched it sort of frame by frame to try to understand exactly what happened and like Adam said I thought it was really interesting seeing just seeing the technology save it because you you saw the airbag inflate and the, you know the the airbag now which were the Alpine Stars airbag which um uh, Mark is using covers the hips the lower back he covers a lot of the body it's giving a lot of protection uh, and he came down and that absorbed a lot he fell on his right shoulder which was obviously you know the, the shoulder which has been giving him so much pro, uh, so many problems um uh, th- that absorbed a lot of the energy when he did bang his head it's sort of like he hit the chin plate first um so he 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 was lucky also because it was a little bit more glancing than uh, it might otherwise have been. He did go up a long way, at least two or three meters, um, and then sort of came down hard. But he came down sort of moving along, and he sort of quickly transitioned into rolling. So I also wonder if that tumbling motion was part of the cause of the of the dizziness he, he had. I think that the, there is... Clearly, you know, some kind of, uh, you know, well, basically brain trauma, uh, some kind of concussion. I think it's very, very good that they stopped him from riding. Um, The question of whether he can keep doing it, uh, that's, I mean, that's the way that Mark rides. Um, I think he keeps on going until he can't ride anymore. I I think he's going to be, he's going to be Mick Doohan and not Valentino Rossi. He will, he will stop when he can't ride anymore.
4: Yeah, I think, uh, like you say, Dave, what is next for Marquez? Uh, you know, where does he go from here? What kind of condition is he in? Um, you know, he's got to get ready for two more trips across the world to Argentina and the USA. Uh, he's 12th in the standings. Um, you know, I just, you know, can he continue this MO of like crashing multiple times on a weekend? I mean, we said it, you know, the first time when he came back from his broken arm. Um, You know, I I think people said it as well when he came back originally from his shoulder injury. Um, It doesn't seem to stop him, of course, but you do think at some point someone's going to say, especially maybe a Honda, listen, you know, we've designed a new concept of motorcycle. Um, You know, we need you in the game.
3: But I do think that uh, a lot of the problems or, well... The, the the tire was a contributory factor to this the, because of the way that the, the, the tire was reacting. Mark was pushing too hard, um, but the way that this tire reacted was also a contributory factor, I think.
1: Yeah, and I think it's one of those situations as well, Ad, like you talk about that brand new Honda. That's also been designed and developed to make it a more open bike for every other rider as well. Maybe for Mark as well, this is one of those instances where he sees that it's not quite as targeted for him and uh, maybe it's going to take a bit of time to get used to us Neil yeah just a,
2: a quick thing to add Steve I had heard from some people within Honda just saying that Mark obviously isn't taking the fact that the Honda has not been built to want his specific needs so well And I mean that's natural I mean he's, he's just he, he kind of knows he's up against it and the fact that someone is on the same motorcycle as him and as he admitted in Qatar is riding it better than him you know basically understands how this particular bike needs to be ridden. We can see Mark over the weekend, the rear grip wasn't there. He doesn't have the feeling with the front like he normally does with the holder. And when he tried to push that front, it just washed away twice within, what, six minutes in ball fun. And that is another thing that he's having to come back from. Um, so it's, it's interesting, you know, it's interesting to see, as Adam says, where he goes from here.
1: I think for me, my big talking point from the weekend is going to be Miguel Oliveira's win because we've barely mentioned him all the way through the pod so far. And uh, it was a, a really impressive performance from the Portuguese rider. He said that the foundation of it was just those first couple of laps and he really was committed to what he could do in those first few laps. Adam, you spoke to Miguel after the win. What was What was his thoughts?
4: Uh, we mean before he dashed away to get his flight and had to duck out <laughs> of the press conference. You mean? <laughs> no, I mean, I, uh, Dave and I chatted about this on the Note Show. And uh, well, why do riders book flights so early? I mean, do they not entertain the possibility they can actually win a race? Uh, but yeah, I mean, Steve, you know, it, Miguel Oliveira's win might have surprised a few people, but he had the pace. I mean, he was looking comfortable from Friday, and you know, getting out onto the track for the first time. Um, I think when it rained, it really just opened um you know open open the track for him and then obviously from hearing the comments of riders like uh you know Pol Espargaro, when you know when they were moving offline they were either hitting sort of white curbs which they couldn't see because of the spray or because of the mud or the dust um you know having to deal with a lot of roost uh oliver didn't have that problem and um, we saw a couple of entertaining laps with jack miller and then, uh, yeah, he burst three, three. Uh, so for his fourth win, you know, in MotoGP. So it was, um, it was an accomplished ride in, in, like we say, in, in pretty atrocious conditions. Um, somebody like Jorge Martin, who we might get to a bit later, you know, was a real victim of one of those channels of water that we saw running across the track, sort of, you know, LaSalle International Circuit style. But, uh, no, it was a, a big win for KTM. And, um, you know, I, I guess we'll talk about them a bit.
3: Yeah, it was an outstanding ride for for Oliveira and, you know, really well done by KTM. Uh, again, I think the rain played a, a little bit of a role here because uh, Oliveira's start was just absolutely fantastic. Um, he was starting on the left-hand side of the track, which was really the dirty side of the track, despite them having done this practice start. Uh, but the fact that, you know, when it rains, it doesn't make any difference. The whole track is slippery, so it doesn't make any difference if you're on, in the middle, on the right, on the left. It's all, it's all the same. you got a fantastic fantastic start he said he followed uh, miller about a bit before to sort of understand what was going on once he understood what was going on he knew where he could push and where he couldn't and then he just took off and the way he managed that race was just exceptional just really really class
4: ride and as we're in the the midst of uh, the msma debating ride height devices and whether they'll be banned going forward um it was kind of curious to see brad binder become a bit of a victim of a malfunction of a ride height device uh you know he's the south african commented that if it hadn't rained he probably doubted he would have got to the end of the race because he was dealing with a vastly lowered motorcycle i mean that's that shows you the perils of this tech and you know how it can go wrong i mean as it is he managed to come through from eighth place but your comment there dave about the start is is, is key as well because for the second grand prix in a row We've seen a KTM RC16 that has managed to, you know, effectively hole shot in terms of the impetus they have on the first lap. I think there's a couple of
2: things just I'd like to mention, to you know, the fact that Olivero, okay, crashed out of the race in arm, but if you look at his FB4 pace, that weekend he was actually really sweet. He was as strong, I think, in pace. Best Binder, he just had a terrible qualifying and was trying to do too much in a race. Couldn't quite understand why he lost the front, so I think the potential was there from race one. Uh, the second thing was just... These guys have had barely any wet weather running uh, on their 2022 bikes. And for them to basically have a cycling lap, warm-up lap, and then jump into the race is just quite phenomenal to be doing the kind of things that they were doing, getting right like, down to the, the fast pace up front. So, you know, Chappell, especially for the guys up front, you, you know, you look at someone like Fabio Cottoirot, he was quick, then dropped back a little bit and then found his rhythm. But for Olivera to be doing that rhythm basically from the start was, was just wildly impressive. And also I feel it's significant that, yes, it's only round 2, and yes, we've had two very strange rounds to almost anomalies, but I think it's significant that KTM are leading the Constructors' Championship for the first time in their history, and uh, also the Teams' Championship for the first time in their history as well. Um, and I just think it, it underlines what a solid, impressive job they have done over the pre-season when it initially wasn't looking so good. Um, I don't know boy Oliver and Binder are the championship, but I think they're going to be regular players up front this year. Um, I think they're going to be regular bowling finishers. And um, it does seem that they've finally got that balance between testing lots of new things and refining their package. They seem to have got that right final. Um, and, uh, and yeah, it looks like they've got in terms of the personality at disposal and the
3: wireless, they've got a, a fantastic operation. Yeah. Well, first of all, there's 19 races left, which is the same length as the 2018 and 2019 MotoGP series. Um, so, you know, it's a bit early to be saying 475 points. Uh, and the other thing is about the ride height devices. I'm not sure, I need to check this, but it seems like what they're going to ban is the front ride high device, not the rear ride high device. At the moment, it looks like the ride-hide device, the, the rear ones, might still be legal. But again, I need to check this.
1: Yeah, that's going to be one of the big talking points over the course of the next couple of rounds as well, Dave, to see exactly what happens for that. We're going to take another break on the Paddock Pass podcast, and when we come back, we're going to look at our winners and losers from the Indonesian Grand Prix.
0: Renthal Fat Bars are synonymous with off-road world champions. The Renthal Street Fat Bar draws from decades of experience to create the ultimate 28 millimeter handlebar in a range of street specific bends. Whether you're looking to alter the height, width, rise or sweep of your handlebar, Renthal Street Handlebars offer a bend to suit your requirements. Use the Works Fit Handlebar Comparison Tool at renthal.com to find the perfect bend.
1: Welcome back to the Paddock Pass Podcast presented by Fly Racing and Renthal Street. We're going to before we move into winners and losers we're going to give Adam the chance just to have a little bit of a gloat. Adam, we've obviously got the fantasy league this year and uh, you know you, you just managed to stay up at the top of it again.
4: Uh I have one word to say Steve. P1. That's all. No, <laughs> I, I, arrogance arrogance and cockiness aside. <laughs> <laughs> it's actually an abbreviation, isn't it? Um Arrogance and cockiness aside, it's really cool to see, I think there's over 200 people now joining the Fantasy League. Uh, As Dave pointed out, it's a long old championship. So, um, you know, if anybody still wants to join in, uh, we're talking with some people about getting some prizes at the end of the season. So it's uh, Paddock Pass Pod Knowles, I think is the title of the Fantasy League. Just come and search for us. We're easy to find. Um, we're very welcoming. We don't like to boast or brag about any of our achievements or predictions. Um, well, but three
1: quarters of us don't.
4: No, that's right. <laughs> but then, um, you know, the, the moment of choosing Miguel Oliveira into my team on Saturday was pure inspiration. So I'm happy to keep it P1. Can I just point out as well that my wife is also in the top five? So um you know, I think work, working for Dorna and having a little bit of insight there is obviously paying off. I wanna know what you three are doing. It's
1: it's rigged. It's rigged. <laughs> I, I'll be honest, I'm making progress, Ad, so I'm happy enough. It's a long season. I was only outscored by you by I don't know, I think it was twenty five points last weekend. So you know, I'm looking at it from the perspective of Mark Marquez. I only gave up twenty five points this week. I can still win this, it's a long season.
3: Yeah, it was a bad week to have Mark uh, Marcus in your in your MotoGP, uh, Mark t- Marcus and Honda in your uh, in your fantasy team. Um, I need to get the hang of this uh, swapping uh, malarkey.
1: I don't know, Dave. We managed to get a full point out of Mark for his qualifying <laughs> efforts. So, You know that was that was really positive. I was happy with that. It's Really good to have him, as one of my gold riders as well. Just a
2: question: Is there ever been someone coming back from seventy fifth in the standings to uh, win a championship <laughs> before? Uh, asking for a friend.
1: <laughs> well, I'll tell you what, Neil, just uh, just to give you an opportunity to make up for uh, such a disaster at the start of your Fantasy League, we'll give you the chance to pick your first winner of the weekend.
2: My first winner of the weekend was also Thailand's first winner in uh, Grand Prix uh, history. Uh, some uh won the Model 2 race in pretty amazing style. Um, I just thought it was it was fantastic. Uh, or he, or he wrote, um, a couple of the, the Model 2 lads that finished behind him just said up, oh, that was his day none of us even if the conditions were just right we're catching Chandler uh, on Sunday um, and you know he's, he's, he's a guy that's been a bit crash happy before a bit excitable I think there was maybe a few cynics, myself included, that were thinking, oh, you know, this is poised for Chandra to maybe throw this away as he gets overexcited towards the end. But he set the fastest lap, I think, on lap 12 and just cruised home. I mean, it was such an accomplished ride. Um, and and let's, let's be frank, I think we've had maybe two or three occasions before where we've seen Chandra do something like that. Um, he started preseason really well. I think he was fastest at one of the preseason tests at the ref. Then he had a big crash, I think, before the mile. That knocked his confidence. And I thought, OK, well, let's just put him back. But... I mean, we're looking at a guy that's made a, a humongous step. Like, I don't think any of us would have ever have thought Sompiak Chandra was capable of posting a, a, a result like that in Model 2, so um, fantastic. And Also, extra points for his part for me interview with Simon Craiffle afterwards, because I think that was my highlight of the day. Just uh, so excitable, such a nice guy, um, and um, yeah, what, what, a, what a moment. I think that's added already uh, an extra 20 to 30,000 the a at Berlin.
4: Yeah. Two things just quickly, like Neil says, I mean, that the part for me interview is absolute gold. I mean, find a way to watch it. I mean, he's almost like an evangelical priest. I mean, I'm a, I'm a believer, uh, you know, I mean, also to see that kind of expression of joy is something you rarely see. I mean, uh, especially last year in motor two, where we had, you know, the, the same team taking one, two on the podium for seven races, uh, you know, just to get someone fresh in there, somebody achieving a milestone was, was really cool to see, but Nil, I mean, was there any kind of justification for the way that, you know, Chantra managed to make that victory happen? I mean, was it a case of changing grip? Like you say, there were spots of rain in motor two, uh, or was it the fact that he just nailed the shorter distance by sprinting ahead early on and keeping that gap?
2: There was signs in qualifying. Or sorry, in um, I mean, he qualified well. In warm-up, he was running the harder option uh, rear tire, which uh, wasn't the race option. And even with the harder rear tire, he was super fast. He was doing the same speed as the leader. So he just had the setup. I think he's obviously made a massive step over the uh, over the winter. Seems to be riding with really good confidence. And you know, you look at the conditions. I guess the conditions we had: humidity, heat. Similar conditions to what he would have been used to riding right in, in Thailand, um, you know, as he was as he was coming up. So, I think some of those factors could have been a play. But even still, um, for him to do that was really unexpected.
1: Yeah, I'm going to jump in with my winners from the weekend because it kind of follows on as well, Neil. And it's those underrepresented regions that we've had in in GP over the years. Because obviously, Thailand's first winner with uh, Chantra, we also had. Mario Aji on the front row in Moto three, but you had Diogo Moreira up there as well. So you had a guy in his second race coming from Brazil, came up through the ranks in the Spanish championships. So um I have to say I think I thought it was really positive to see that road Modo GP really paying off for a lot of these guys. You know, Chantra and Aji came through from um the Asia Talent Cup and then obviously the European talent cup for Moreira racing in Spain. So I think that was really positive. But uh, David, what about you? Who was your big winner from the weekend?
3: I think my big one of the weekend is Fabio Quartararo, who again we haven't mentioned. He had a fantastic race, um, qualified on pole, was looking really, really strong. We had uh, looking his FP4 pace; he was so much faster than the rest. I think he would have um, uh, had at least as good a race as that uh, if it had been in the dry. It took him a little while to figure out how much grip there was, but when he was, it, it, you know, he had a really, really strong uh, pace. Looked to be catching Miguel Oliveira, uh, but Oliveira just responded and managed even better. So, yeah. Uh, and he comes out of it. Like, you know, after Qatar, it was all, oh, my season's a disaster and I don't know what I'm going to do. Um, but he found feeling with the bike. That was for him, I think, the most important thing. He was feeling comfortable with the bike again. And uh, if they could carry this on for the rest of the season, then that's good. He made a big step forward. Like I said, I've just sort of. Um, I'm sort of uh, undoing what I just said about the, the the season still being a long way to go and uh, it all not meaning very much. Uh, but I th- I think that Fabio Quartararo is now best placed for the championship. One more thing about um, um, about Neil's point. I think if I'm not uh, if I'm not correct that uh, if I'm if I'm not wrong that the Triumph actually built their seven six fives in Thailand. So it was uh, two ties on the podium.
1: Yeah, they do actually because I remember having to go to the factory. A couple of years ago, whenever they were just taking on that Muru Two contract,
3: it was three ties on the podium because Aaron Kanet was wearing his bow tie. So there you go. <laughs> oh, Neil, don't give up, don't give up the day
1: job. <laughs> what What about you, Adam? Do you have any really bad jokes like Neil to to tie up your winner of the weekend?
4: He's completely thrown me, actually, Steve. I don't really know what to say now. Um, but uh, my my winner of the weekend is uh, KTM, for obvious reasons. Uh, like Neil mentioned earlier, for the first time, top of the constructor standings, uh, first time as uh, topping the team standings. Both riders in the top four of the world championship. Standings, Even though we are only two races in. And, you know, again, um, you know, while Neil has undoubtedly killed Andrea Migno's bid for world championship success on, on the Moto3 broadcast, I think his point about Brad Binder and Oli for world championship contention is actually pretty valid. I mean, I would put like a sneaky you know, bit of money on Brad Binder being like the dark horse in the championship this year, because from evidence so far, he seems to be a little bit more of a live wire um, when it comes to the Saturday qualification lark, which held him back so much um, in 2021. So if Binder in the next three, four five races is a consistently good qualification performer, then I think he's going to get the results that's going to keep him in the top five of the championship. And he might just have... That ability to to bounce quite well, which he does, and then um, you know endure as the season goes on.
1: Yeah, not bad for KTM in Moto Three as well. I did eight bikes inside the top te- top nine, but uh, just not that race winner. But it was good to see the the CF Moto brand getting their first podium as well. With Carlos Tatai, a good weekend for him. Um, I'm going to kick off the the losers of the weekend just because Adam's already mentioned him. Andrea Migno, and uh, obviously no fault of his own that he has that crash, but uh, Migno. Was uh, a little bit further down the order than uh, we would have expected from him. Obviously, I think it was eighth and ninth position himself in Sasaki at the time of the crash. So uh, Mino, I think for me he was my my big loser from the weekend. Neil, what about you? Who was yours?
2: Nick Bonaya, one of the preseason favourites, if not the preseason favourite, with two races in the year and he scored one point. Um, obviously things are just not really going well for him. He did all. He could not to specifically say that uh, Mitchell had kind of discovered his chances in this race, but said that basically there was just no grip there um, throughout in the wet, And he couldn't really understand why. Um Yeah, kind of an anonymous showing. Uh, very lucky, actually, to, to finish the race and not crash because he had a huge moment going into turn one. And yeah, you know, it was like a really nice, kind of, just a a good kind of polite guy but there's just been a few examples in his debriefs of him getting a wee bit agitated and you can tell that the strain is maybe just affecting him ever so slightly he's not quite the cam measured presence that he is he snapped a few times i've seen not least that uh, mr david Emmett after the race in qatar because he was out uh, crying about uh, the uh, the engine saga that um has performed Ducati uh this year um so yeah i think Obviously, still so much running to go, but it, it, it has been a bad, bad start for by And um, already, you know, he's what thirty points behind the championship leader. I mean, okay, we're not talking about a huge and surmountable mind but it's certainly not the start he would have envisioned.
1: David, obviously, other than annoying Paco, you're only a point behind him in the championship standings as well. <laughs> I uh,
3: I am yes it you know four hundred and seventy five points to go so everything is still open. Um, the my big loser is uh, it, it has to be Mark Marquez because crashes like this, I mean, it has to knock his confidence. Uh, the, the two crashes in Q one, I mean, yeah, they were sort of unfortunate, but that massive, massive off, uh, uh, that high side, uh, they, he's had so many big crashes recently so much um sort of he's had to go through so much emotionally that has got to start taking uh taking its toll at some point um you know just the stress the strain of it all having to because he's what's remarkable about it is the man the, the way that he's able to sort of just bluff his way through to, to convince himself that it, uh, that he can get through this and come back and that sort of mental sort of force of will is is really exceptional but at a certain point
4: that sort of
1: chutzpah has got to run out adam what about you Who was your big loser from the indonesian grand prix
4: i'm gonna go for the martinator steve um, purely because two races in is on zero points, um, and having only recently finished, you know, watching the Amazon MotoGP Unlimited series, I mean, Jorge Martin is one of the more prevalent characters in there, um, and it's quite revealing. I think you know he's dealings with Fonzi Nieto as part of the Pramac team. Uh, you know, there's, there's moments in the in the series where he's dealing with anxiety, fear, and he's actually comes across as more, more as one of the relatable characters at the same time. Uh, so I guess he's more kind of in my consciousness. But at the same time, I think he's he was kind of Ducati's golden child, wasn't he? Amongst all the riders they have in their stock, you think, you know, how, is Martin going to be the one that's really going to push somebody like Jack Miller for the, for the factory seat? Um, of course, NA Bastianini surprised us all a little bit in Qatar. But uh, Martin, two races um, right at the bottom of the riders' standings was zero. I mean, you know, that's that's worse than Peko, obviously. So it's, uh, you know, it's a, it's a big... It was a pretty poor start to the year in terms of, um, you know, elevating his status even further in MotoGP.
2: Can I just ask you a question, Adam? Has there been a time in the past couple of years when Jorge Martínez hasn't been floating around your consciousness? <laughs>
4: uh, in a positive way, Neil, not so much. I, I did feel like there was a, a, a you know a crumb of sympathy for him in Red Bull Ring where he just veered into the, into the red track limits area and lost that Grand Prix win in Moto2. Uh, 2019, perhaps? I can't even remember the year now, 2020. There you go. So uh, he had some sympathy there. But until he changes his nickname, then, then I'm not a fan. (laughs)
1: I think you're going to be waiting a wee while for that Adam obviously enough though no one's going to be waiting a long time for more content from the Paddock Pass podcast we're going to be out every week as usual through the course of this season we also have on patreon.com forward slash paddockpass podcast lots of additional content all the way through the season so check that out we've got uh, lots of different tiers that give different options on it the newest tier we have is actually a $50 tier where you're able to jump on a Zoom call with us, get some merchandise as well, and uh, plenty of other offers through the course of this season. Paddock Notes, like Adam mentioned, is on our $10 tier. So over the course of a Grand Prix weekend, that's where we'll be able to check in after we've uh, talked to all the riders, talked to the teams, and get everyone up to speed over the course of the weekend. So until next week on the Paddock Pass podcast, a big thank you from all of us for uh, everyone listening to this week's show and a big thank you to Rent All and to Fly Racing for supporting the podcast. This episode of the Paddock
0: Pass Podcast was produced by Jensen Beeler, David Emmett, Steve English, Neil Morrison, and Adam Wheeler. It was edited by Brian Burnett. Music is provided by The Liberty. All inquiries can be sent via email to team at paddockpasspodcast.com.
4: you just sucked away all my points as a as my winner of the week.
1: Oh shit! <laughs> that's all right, It'd Be nice to short. That, that's grand because we we only want to keep this next bit at you know five ten minutes tops.